Welcome to the Vetfolio podcast brought to you in part by DECRA. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we explore the topic of atypical Addison's disease with our guest speakers, Dr. Patty Lathan and Dr. Ann Thompson. Please note the information provided in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you in your practice. The views and opinions provided are those of the presenter and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vetfolio or its sponsors. Now let's dive into our session with our guest speakers. Hi everybody, thank you for joining us for another session on Addison's disease. This particular podcast is going to focus on atypical Addison's disease. My name is Patty Lathan. I am normally at Mississippi State University, but right now I happen to be in Australia visiting my resident mate, Ann Thompson, who works at the University of Queensland. And she's joining us for this podcast because she actually wrote a research paper on atypical Addison's disease and compared it to typical Addison's disease. So thanks for joining us, Anne. Thank you, Patty. And uh, let's get to it. I want to start off by just defining atypical Addison's disease because I think a lot of people get confused with the definition. It's also known as atypical hypoadrenal corticism. So animals with atypical Addison's disease have clinical signs associated with cortisol deficiency only, which means that their electrolyte concentrations are normal. An animal with atypical Addison's must have a normal potassium and normal sodium concentration. If a patient has hyperkalemia and a normal sodium or hyponatremia and a normal potassium, we still consider them to have typical Addison's disease because they have mineral corticoid deficiencies and we're going to need to replace that. One thing I would note here is that I've had a few dogs that initially present with no electrolyte abnormalities but develop electrolyte abnormalities after a few days or up to a week after presentation and I would consider these animals to be typical Addisonians, not atypical Addisonians, even though at presentation they might not have sodium-potassium abnormalities but they develop them quite rapidly after presentation. So because it's usually within the first few days or week, I would consider them to be typical, not atypical. Okay, Anne, I think you addressed this in your paper. How common would you say atypical Addison's disease is? I would say it's rare. Addison's disease in general is, is not a common disease that we see in practice, but and atypical Addison's patients are even rarer. So in the paper, in my paper, we had I think 42 dogs and 11 of those dogs had atypical Addison's disease. So in our you know, tertiary referral hospital population, it was, a, I guess, a reasonably high number of patients that uh, presented, but I think out in, in general practice, it's probably not that common, although I guess we've had the discussion that maybe there are some dogs out there that don't get diagnosed because of financial constraints that owners have and unwillingness to work their animals up with their chronic gastrointestinal signs. Maybe there are some animals out there that are diagnosed with potentially having inflammatory bowel disease and are treated with prednisone, but maybe they really have something like atypical Addison's disease and they respond to therapy anyway. So it's rare, but it's hard to know for sure what the numbers are out there. Yeah, and I think you're you're right. I think it might happen a little bit more frequently than we diagnose it, but it's hard to say. So moving on from that, how exactly does atypical Addison's occur? I think there are a lot of different theories out there, or several different theories out there, none of which have been proven. First, I want to differentiate and make sure everybody understands that there is another type of Addison's that can occur where the patient has normal electrolyte concentrations, and that's secondary hypoadrenal corticism, so secondary Addison's. And that occurs due to some sort of defect or tumor or whatever associated with the pituitary gland so that no ACTH is produced and therefore 
the adrenal gland doesn't produce any cortisol either. Now remember that aldosterone, which controls the electrolytes, is actually under the control of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So patients with secondary Addison's will have normal electrolytes because their aldosterone doesn't depend on ACTH for synthesis. So in some of these patients that we suspect of having atypical Addison's because they have normal electrolytes, we'll we'll go ahead and measure ACTH concentrations in these guys just to make sure that they have some ACTH and a high ACTH concentration is associated with atypical Addison's and not with secondary Addison's. That said, a lot of these patients, we don't end up measuring ACTH concentrations just due to timing and the finicky sample handling requirements of endogenous ACTH, and we just treat them with steroids long-term. So moving on after that, so again, how does atypical Addison's occur? So for some reason, these guys have normal electrolyte concentrations, but signs of cortisol deficiencies. So there are two different theories on how atypical Addison's occurs that I think are both legitimate and we have some evidence for. One is that these patients, for one reason or another, they have selective destruction of the two inner layers of their adrenal cortex, which makes cortisol, the fasciculata and reticularis, whereas the glomerulosa, the outer layer of the adrenal cortex, which makes aldosterone, is spared. There was one study actually done at Purdue by our mentor, which showed that there are indeed some patients that are diagnosed with Addison's with normal electrolytes, but we see on histopathology that the zona reticularis and fasciculata are destroyed, but the glomerulosa is spared. So that's one potential mechanism for how atypical Addison's occurs, and it also might be a reason that some of these patients end up having electrolyte abnormalities later on. Maybe it started out with fasciculata and reticularis, and then later on it did go to the glomerulosa, but a lot of them don't end up having electrolyte abnormalities later on. The other potential mechanism for atypical Addison's, which there's some evidence for, is that maybe these guys actually don't have aldosterone production. Maybe they're also aldosterone deficient, but for some reason they're able to compensate. And the reason we think this mechanism is possible is there was a study done out of Europe a few years ago in which patients with signs of cortisol deficiency only but with normal electrolytes had their aldosterone concentrations measured, and a lot of these actually had really, really low aldosterone concentrations, but their electrolytes were completely normal. How these guys compensate, I don't know. They just seem to do it. So moving on, and what would you say are the most common clinical signs associated with atypical Addison's? I think that the common clinical signs that we see are the same as most dogs with with typical Addison's disease. It's usually gastrointestinal signs, so anorexia, maybe some vomiting and diarrhea, weight loss would be the common clinical signs that we see. And usually they're chronic, so waxing and waning, gastrointestinal clinical signs, I have seen a handful of dogs that have presented to me initially with hypoglycemia, and so they they don't have a history of clinical signs of GI disease, but they'll present you in a hypoglycemic crisis. But they do not present with hypovolemia like we see with animals in an Addisonian crisis, and we don't see the bradycardia, the low blood pressure that we see with animals having a, a normal, typical Addisonian crisis. So this tends to be more of a chronic disease unless we have a patient that's having a hypoglycemic crisis. So that that would be fairly similar, but except they don't tend to have such a severe crisis. 
Good deal. And moving on, kind of associated with what you were just talking about, what's the difference in clinical pathologic abnormalities between the typical and atypical patients we see? Okay, well, the obvious one is that they don't have electrolyte abnormalities, so we don't see the sodium and potassium abnormalities that we see classically with dogs with typical Addison's. And this is where it can be quite difficult to diagnose them because most of us think when we see sodium potassium abnormalities and we see the hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, we think Addison's. But when we have animals without those abnormalities on their blood work, we don't necessarily think Addison's disease. So the subtle things that we look for would be hypoglycemia or maybe a glucose in the low normal reference range. They might have mild non-regenerative anemia. We might see hypocholesterolemia and hypoalbuminemia. So they're mild, but they're some of the subtle things. And also, we might see lack of a stress glucogram in a sick animal, or we might even see a reverse stress glucogram, so an eosinophilia or a lymphocytosis in these patients. So they're, they're the things that I look for. And again, all these things can be associated with patients that have typical Addison's disease. However, these atypicals, again, are lacking any electrolyte abnormalities. And one thing I should have added there is that some patients have no changes on their blood work, so their CBC and biochemistry may be perfectly normal, which makes it even harder to diagnose. Yeah, and that's one of the big things about atypical Addison's, why we think that these guys are often overlooked because... I think a lot of people are really looking for those electrolyte abnormalities and don't think of doing an ACTH simulation test until they see those electrolyte abnormalities. So please, everybody, keep Addison's in mind, even if you have no electrolyte abnormalities, because those guys with this chronic GI disease can certainly have it. So moving on, we kind of alluded to this already. How do we diagnose atypical hypoadrenocorticism? Definitive diagnosis of Addison's disease still relies upon an ACTH stimulation test, and in one of the other podcasts, I went into a lot of detail in how to do an ACTH stimulation test, so we won't do that, go into that now, but again, an ACTH stimulation test is required for definitive diagnosis. If the post-ACTH stimulation cortisol concentration is less than 2 micrograms per deciliter, then that's consistent with atypical Addison's disease. That's correct. The one thing I would also mention here is that any animal that has been on medication that might suppress the ability of their adrenal gland to make cortisol should be ruled out before you diagnose this disease. So if the patient has been on corticosteroids that might suppress the adrenal response and the obvious ones are drugs like trilostane, mitotane, ketoconazole, those types of drugs that might suppress the ability of the adrenal gland to respond, make sure you've ruled out use of those drugs before you do your ACTH stimulation test because they might give you a false positive, uh, you might get a, a flat line or a low stim and think the animal has that as a, a possibility. The other thing that we sometimes use as a screening test is a baseline cortisol. So if we've got ACTH stimulation tests, certainly in Australia and I'm assuming in America, are quite expensive to run and every single animal that I see with gastrointestinal disease, I don't necessarily want to jump straight to an ACTH stimulation test to rule out atypical Addison's disease. So what I will commonly do is just do a baseline cortisol so taking my blood sample from my CBC biochem, I tend to request a baseline or a basal cortisol level and I'll have to get hand over to Patty to talk about American units, but usually if they're above two, then um, you've ruled out atypical Addison's disease. So, But if they're less than two, then you probably need to follow up with a full ACTH stimulation test to rule out atypical Addison's disease. So that's sort of a cheaper way of screening these animals with chronic GI disease to try and make sure, you know, is their cortisol level normal or not? 
If it's low, then you need to consider atypical Addison still. And we talked about more about the baseline cortisol during the diagnosis podcast, so that'll go into a little bit more detail there. But I will say that, you know, being in a referral institution, we get a lot of patients referred in for chronic GI signs that are potentially going to undergo endoscopy. And one of my former interns asked me if we should just include a baseline cortisol or minimum database for all these patients we're going to scope because I do a baseline cortisol on every single one of them. If that tells you how frequently we do this and how much I love baseline cortisols because we used to have to spend, you know, two or three hundred bucks on doing an ACTH stim to roll at Addison's, which, you know, you kind of balk at when you're also having to pay for an endoscopy. But having to pay less than $50 to rule out Addison's baseline cortisol is, in my mind, quite the bargain. And certainly an important thing to do before anesthetizing the patient. So if you're going to anesthetize a dog and spend, as Patty said, a lot of money doing endoscopy to get a GI biopsy, certainly doing that relatively cheap test in, the, in looking at the big picture is worth doing to rule that disease out and also for patient safety. And I previously mentioned secondary hypoadrenocorticism due to deficiency of ACTH. That's another thing that we can measure in our atypical Addisonian suspects is an endogenous ACTH concentration to make sure they don't have secondary Addison's. We ideally would measure or take the sample for an endogenous ACTH prior to doing an ACTH simulation test, of course, because if we give them ACTH, then that's going to cross-react with the assay. Alternatively, you can check an endogenous ACTH concentration about 24 hours after you do an ACTH simulation test. Fortunately, ACTH has a really, really short half-life in the body, so that's possible. But make sure that you haven't given any steroids before you do an endogenous ACTH concentration because those steroids, of course, are going to suppress ACTH production and therefore decrease it. The other thing I wanted to mention about diagnosis of atypical Addison's is what we don't need to measure when we're diagnosing atypical Addison's, and that is aldosterone. It makes sense that all of us would say, okay, well, we're looking for animals that have signs of cortisol deficiency only, so these animals should have normal aldosterone concentrations, right, because these animals have normal electrolytes. Like I said at the beginning, some of the patients that have atypical Addison's disease where their electrolytes are normal have been shown actually to have decreased or non-existent aldosterone concentrations. So because of that, if I measure an aldosterone concentration and it's within reference range, then I'm like, okay, well, that dog obviously can make aldosterone and they're atypical. But if I measure them and I say, well, the aldosterone concentration is like zero, I can say, well, there was a study already that showed that some animals that have no aldosterone production still are able to maintain normal electrolyte concentrations and don't need mineral corticoid supplementation. So at this point, I don't see a clinical utility in measuring aldosterone concentrations in our atypical patients. I agree, because yeah, they can be normal or they can be low and doesn't seem to reflect clinically what they're doing in regards to their electrolytes. So, Patty, I'll ask you a question. Can you tell me how you treat dogs with atypical Addison's? What drugs do you use? What doses do you use? So, one of the awesome things about atypical Addison's is it's so freaking cheap to treat. You know, when we talk about treating typical Addison's, you've got to treat with a mineral corticoid, which is including DOCP or fludrocortisone, which is actually the expensive part of treating Addison's, because not only do you have to pay for the medication, but you have to pay for the 
monitoring of electrolytes long term. With an atypical Addisonian, we don't have to worry about mineral corticoids, so we just need to supplement with a glucocorticoid. Generally, prednisone is my glucocorticoid of choice. Some people use prednisolone, which is absolutely fine as well, depending on what's available. And a lot of times we go back and forth depending on the pill sizes that are available and what we need for our patient. In animals with atypical Addison's, I usually start at a prednisone dose of 0.5 to 1 mg per kg, knowing that I'm going to decrease it down over time. The way that we end up dosing and monitoring prednisone doses in dogs with Addison's in general is just based on clinical signs. So I know that the recommended physiologic dose of prednisone long-term is between 0.1 and 0.25 mg per kg per day. So what I do is I start patients on a higher dose, like I said, around 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per day, and then I decrease that dose and get it down to physiologic dose over a period of a week or two based on a combination of clinical signs and side effects. So usually what will happen, if I send a patient home on 0.5 to 1 mg per kg of PRED per day, those owners are going to call me back and tell me that the animal's PUPD and polyphagic. So I'm going to start incrementally decreasing the prednisone dose, and I decrease it down to the point where the owner still thinks the animal is doing clinically well. If the animal starts to have vomiting or diarrhea, if they start just not acting right, according to the owner, then I'll increase the prednisone dose. And my experience is that I can usually get the prednisone dose down to a little bit below 0.1 mg per kg per day in most patients. My experience is that a lot of people keep the prednisone dose higher than it needs to be, but based on clinical signs and side effects, I've gotten some of my patients, especially the bigger dogs, the bigger dogs seem to be really sensitive to prednisone dosing. So I've gotten a lot of them down to even 0.03 mg per kg of pred per day. But I think it is imperative that these patients be on some dose of prednisone per day. I would agree with you. I think that sometimes it's incredible how low the dose of prednisone we get these patients down to. But the, the goal of initial dosing is to get resolution of clinical signs and then before we start to get too many of the signs of iatrogenic Cushing's disease, i.e. the PUPD polyphagia, you know, we start to wean that dose down. As Patty said, we hold them at the dose that maintains their clinical signs. So we want a good appetite and no vomiting and diarrhea and then also no signs of iatrogenic Cushing's. Another thing that Patty and I have been discussing is what do we do with animals in stressful situations and do we tell owners to avoid stressful situations? And I guess the, the reality is we say no, they, that we want them to live a normal, happy dog life. And so if they're going to have a stressful situation and who knows what that stressful situation is for a dog, but probably having visitors, going into a kennel, not something that is intensity an Australian issue, but Patty's told me about hunting. In those types of situations where the animals may be exercising more or is in a potentially stressful situation, that we usually double the dose. If they're coming in to have a dental procedure, for example, again, we give them an increased dose of corticosteroids that morning when they're, if they're having a procedure in the hospital, and then they can go back down to their normal dose in the next couple of days. You agree? Yeah, she's right. I guess there aren't as many hunting dogs in Australia as in the southern United States, i.e. Mississippi. But there was a case that Anne saw during our residency, which we'll never forget (laughs) of the – this was a typical Addisonian, but she presented for a hypoglycemic seizure following a hunting episode. And we finally convinced the student that he needed an ACTH stimulation test because he didn't really want to agree with us that his dog could have Addison's. And granted, several of us were a little bit crazy over Addison's. So he was probably rightly suspicious, but that particular dog did really well. And we supplemented with prednisone as normally. And the dog went on hunting trips. Even after diagnosis, the owner just doubled the prednisone dose. So I do want to emphasize that we don't need to avoid stress in these animals. These animals should be able to live 
absolutely normal lives with Addison's disease. We just need to double the dose of prednisone when appropriate. We don't have to provide as much therapy for these atypical Addisonians supportively as the typical Addisonians, and of course mentioned that these patients don't tend to present in hypovolemic shock. The biggest things we'll have to treat some of them with, of course, are dextrose if they present with the hypoglycemic episode, or sometimes if they have GI signs, we'll give them an antiemetic or we'll give them some H2 blockers, just some sort of therapy. But generally, these guys do pretty well with minimal therapy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. If we've diagnosed these patients with atypical disease, we've started therapy, how do we monitor them? Do we need to do ACTH stimulation tests on these animals to follow up? Yeah, and that's a really important question, And because I've seen some people that do these, and I certainly don't think we ever need to do an ACTH stimulation test again once we've diagnosed Addison's Once we've diagnosed naturally occurring Addison's disease, obviously if these animals become Addisonian secondary to trilosane or mitosane therapy, we'll do ACTH test again. But in general, once a dog is diagnosed with Addison's, we don't ever need to do an ACTH stimulation test again because if we do it, we've already proven that their poor little adrenal cortex can't make any more cortisol and giving them prednisone is not going to make their adrenal cortex make cortisol. We're just giving them what they need. So really, long-term, our monitoring of these guys is going to be based mostly on clinical signs. If they're lethargic, anorexic, if they're just not doing right, we generally increase the prednisone dose in these animals. And if they have signs of glucocorticoid excess, such as PUPD, polyphagia, or in the bigger dogs, I've seen muscle wasting, I'll decrease the prednisone dose to effect. One thing I worry about when I diagnose a dog with atypical Addison is are they going to develop typical Addison's disease? So do you monitor electrolytes? And if you do monitor electrolytes, how frequently do you do it? So I'd like to know what you do. So uh, that's a funny question because I feel like sometimes I might make it up. So some of them do convert to typical Addisonians later on, and it depends on which paper you look at as to how frequently that happens. But I would say it's uncommon, and if it occurs, it usually does occur within the first year. So what I'll do is I'll check electrolyte concentrations, obviously at the time of diagnosis, but that's usually involved serum chemistry in minimum database for diagnosis of these guys. But then I'll check it maybe a month after initial diagnosis, then maybe monthly for, I don't know, three to six months, then every three months for like a year, and then every six months thereafter, just to make sure everything is going pretty well. And make sure when you have these animals come in for their electrolyte concentration that you have the owner double up the pred on those days. I would probably check them a little bit more frequently in the beginning, like maybe come back for a recheck in the first second, first week after diagnosis, because the ones that I've had that have become typical Addisonians tend to develop electrolyte abnormalities quite rapidly. So Maybe, again, one week after diagnosis, and then I'd back off if they're still normal then. But, yeah, I agree with you that it's probably once a month, and then you spread it out. I agree. We sort of make it up as we go. As long as they're normal, then we'll say see you back in a few months. And I think that's fair. I think usually after I diagnose an atypical Addisonia, I'll probably have them coming back in a week just to check on them anyway. So at that point, I would be doing an electrolyte recheck, so that's a really good point. Yeah. I guess we've covered most of it. I think the next part really to cover is the prognosis of these guys, and The reason that Anne and I, I think, both love Addison's in general so much (laughs) is because the prognosis is awesome in these guys. You know what? When I talk about typical Addison's, I say the prognosis is great as long as the owners have enough money to treat the animals. With atypical Addison's, the awesome thing is all we're treating them with is some really cheap prednisone. So as long as the owners keep up on giving them a prednisone and 
they monitor appropriately or and we adjust the dose of prednisone appropriately based on clinical signs and side effects, then these animals tend to have a really good yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and sometimes these animals have had months and months of clinical signs and poor appetite and they're looking quite thin and unwell when they come to see you. And just by doing a few diagnostic tests and then starting them on a very cheap therapy, they're totally different animals with a good long-term prognosis. So usually we have, you know, happy owners and happy patients, which is obviously our goal. So I agree, Patty, I love Addison's disease full stop, but atypical is probably a little bit more special than typical Addison's dogs to manage. So, yeah, great disease. Great disease to diagnose, great disease to manage, and can be a diagnostic challenge, but once you've got your eyes open looking for it, you know, you don't tend to miss them. Thanks, and You guys can all tell that we're quite the fan of Addison's disease. So <laughs> hopefully you guys have gotten as enthusiastic as we have during this podcast. I know my students that diagnose Addison's beforehand, they're, it's not that they're skeptical about how awesome it is, but afterwards it's amazing how many Facebook posts I get that say, hey, I just diagnosed my first Addisonia, and you're right, it's really awesome because these animals were pretty sick beforehand, and now they're doing well. So thanks, everybody, for joining us for this session on atypical Addisons. Make sure to check out the other podcasts we have, particularly I referred to a few times the podcast on diagnosis of Addisons. And thanks to Anne for joining me down here in Australia, I will tell you that it was a little distracting looking out Anne's window and seeing the really pretty little lorikeets flying by. This is definitely not something I saw in my office when I was recording the other podcast. And thanks again. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. We hope that you found the information shared in this session useful. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, please be sure to check out related programs which you can access from vetfolio.com. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, DECRA, for their support. Let us know what you thought about this session and other topics you'd like to hear on future podcasts. You can connect with the Vetfolio team via support at vetfolio.com.